Welcome to the Mental Wellbeing Show, where we take a deep dive into the wonderful world of psychology and mental wellbeing. Nikos, do you mind just introducing yourself to us um, and a little bit about your research as well that, that you've done prolifically today? Yeah, hi, my name is uh, Nikos Dumanis. I'm a professor of motivation science. I'm currently based at the University of uh, Southern Denmark. And uh, I'm a researcher uh, who's uh, uh, primarily worked in the area of uh, physical activity promotion for the last uh, 20 plus years. Excellent. Yeah, I know you've got a lot of research on in particular um, self-determination theory and, and that relationship to exercise. Um, are you able to kind of walk us through, you know, a little bit about what self-determination theory is um, for those who don't know? Yeah, of course. Um, I have used uh, self-determination theory a fair bit in my research. It's um, a fairly well-known theory of motivation with applications uh, in a wide variety of uh, life domains, uh, such as uh, work, education, health, interpersonal relationships. And essentially, um, this theory talks about uh, different types of motivation, the different quality, some are better than others. And uh, it states that uh, individuals uh, will able to obtain better outcomes in terms of uh, showing uh, better uh, uh, cognitive outcomes, uh, better emotional experiences, better behavioral outcomes in terms of persistence, goal achievement, when they have high quality motivation, a motivation that is based on um, feelings of enjoyment and value as opposed to motivation due to internal or external pressures. And uh, to achieve this high quality motivation, this theory argues that individuals need to um, be able to satisfy three basic psychological needs that all of us have. Even if we don't consciously value these three needs, we do, uh, uh, we do feel better and uh, perform better and function better as individuals when these needs, needs are satisfied. So these needs are the need to feel in control of what you do, to feel autonomous, the need to feel good at what you do, the need for competence, and the need to feel meaningfully related and accepted by people around you, the need for relatedness. Okay, That's so there's... The theory, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and you mentioned those three uh, basic psychological needs, so autonomy, competence, and relatedness. So I know, you know, you've done a lot of work in different contexts with um, this theory, but in particular with, with physical activity, um, how is that kind of uh, applied to, to exercise? And particularly if someone has the goal of exercising more, how um, could they go about that using those three psychological needs? Yeah, so um, this theory has been applied quite a lot in terms of uh, promoting physical activity and exercise. And, and I guess uh, if uh, someone wants to uh, exercise more, this theory gives some suggestions in terms of uh, um, this individual or the people around these individuals um, thinking more in terms of uh, why they want to exercise more and progressively try to shift any motivation that is based on pressures, uh, feelings of guilt, 
that one might have not exercised enough or pressure from spouse or from uh, physician to be more active to pot potentially um, shift these kind of uh, reasons to uh, more what we call autonomous motives, uh, motivations based on enjoyment and personal value. So um, it is important that individuals uh, uh, choose activities that uh, they like. Um, and so because they're more likely to stick with those activities and um, the um, experience that they have within these activities should be uh, conducive to uh, feelings of autonomy, competence, and relatedness. So, for instance, uh, um, in a fitness environment, uh, if you work with uh, a fitness instructor, a personal trainer, it's important that the, um, the personal trainer uh, tries to support uh, the exercises need for, for competence by um, giving uh, positive and constructive feedback, setting achievable goals with the exerciser. Um, uh, promoting autonomy in terms of uh, acknowledging, for instance, uh, uh, some uh, issues such as uh, that the exercise in my field at the beginning, a little bit uh, concerned uh, in terms of being more active, for instance, because they don't feel they have the stamina or the strength uh, to, to be more active or perhaps because they feel um, fatigue, uh, muscular discomfort. So uh, acknowledging negative feelings and identifying with the exercise uh, what are the uh, activities uh, that the exercise enjoys doing and trying to use this more in the training. And lastly, relating is quite important so that uh, the uh, fitness instructor um, establishes a good rapport with the exercise, uh, uh, is able to, to listen uh, to what the exerciser has to say and uh, be unconditionally supportive. And if it's a group setting, uh, create situations within which uh, exercises will provide uh, emotional or other types of support for each other. Hmm. So that there's, a, there's a lot there in terms of those conditions that you're talking about to make um, exercise you know, more doable in a long-term basis for people. And I'm hearing that one of the keys is enjoying what you're doing. And I think that that falls under the whole um, intrinsic motivation of, of STT. So what about in context, and this could be exercise or not, but what about in context where people perhaps have to do something they don't enjoy? For example, um, an exam or study for an exam that's you know part of their course. Um, you know, How can they go about um, augmenting that from an STT point of view um, and making that a more... In, enjoyable or consistent or just high quality behavior yeah so uh, that's that's a good question and also um it is uh, true that sometimes uh, when we um, engage in some types of exercise uh we don't necessarily enjoy the exercise but we know that they're, they're good for us right mm -hmm. uh that's where the um one of the uh types of motivation, identify the regulation uh, comes into play. According to this type of motivation, um, we are motivated because we value the, the behavior as opposed to necessarily because uh, we enjoy it. And the same goes with the other kinds of behaviors you mentioned before, such as revising for an important exam or perhaps attending an important uh, medical uh, screening appointment. 
there are lots of stuff we, we do in life because um, they're, 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 they're important for us, but we don't get any enjoyment out of them. Um, there are uh, some strategies that one can use in this situation. One is, uh, for instance, to try to remind oneself about the, the utility of uh, these uh, activities. Uh, if it's not personal, if it's not possible to, to build in any enjoyment in doing them, uh, and uh, the utility of these activities is is uh, something that uh, has to be uh, um, has to be uh, um, developed uh, over time by, uh, for instance, identifying uh, what are the potential outcomes of um, doing this activity for for not only for for yourself but also the benefits for the people around you and sometimes also try to reward yourself for doing these activities by uh, doing something fun and you enjoy before or after the activity um, so that you associate uh, this activity with uh, something fun that precedes or follow that follows that activity Right. Okay. That, that makes sense. And as well, touching on something you said um, earlier in the way of coaches and, and trainers um, and how they can augment um, enjoyment and adherence to exercise. I came across one of your studies um, where you found essentially that I think a pilot study where the, the no pain, no gain approach essentially wasn't supported in terms of continued intention to exercise from those participants. And, you know, as someone who's, who's been in the fitness industry for a number of years now, I, that flies in the face of what I do see and what I've practiced myself, to be honest, for, um, you know, up, up till recently. So, you know, what do you have to, to say about that? What are kind of the findings that you found, you know, that perhaps go against the, you know, pushing that no pain, no gain, push harder approach that trainers do, um, you know, uh, push in their sessions, so to speak? Yeah, so the no pain, no gain modality is uh, quite prevalent, as you said, in the fitness industry. And uh, I think for the mass, vast majority of people, it doesn't really work long term to have this modality um, because uh, essentially you associate exercise with discomfort and, and pain, something unpleasant. And this association will become quite automatic. and could potentially put off people from becoming or, may, or maintaining physical activity because the first thing that will come to their mind is the uh, the pain, uh, feeling out of breath, uh, feeling exhausted, uh, feeling dizzy, um, all these uh, negative uh, connotations with uh, exercise. Um, exercise to be maintained long-term um, what we really need to experience is a, a feeling of, uh, of pleasure, uh, uh, feelings uh, of um, being ideally in a flow state, uh, as opposed to uh, feeling um, pressured and, and exhausted. Um, and uh, what we found in that study is that, uh, actually that was the study that we conducted with fitness instructors of a big multinational fitness company has presence uh, uh, in North America, Oceania, and Europe. And uh, you're right that the, this uh, mentality of no pain, no gain was uh, quite prevalent at the beginning. But we challenged this um, mentality 
And eventually, um, the fitness instructors realized uh, why um, it doesn't work. And I quite particularly like one of the quotes we got when we interviewed the instructors at the end of the study. One of them said that uh, um, as a result of the training, they were able to modify how they communicated with the exercises. And the exercises uh, told this particular instructor that um, we like now you push us, but in a nicer way. Um, so in a way, um, the, the fitness instructor was able to um, obviously maintain this uh, expectations and standards in, in terms of what they wanted from the exercises to achieve, but they were able to do it in a way that was more accommodative, uh, more sympathetic, and, and um, it wasn't uh, an approach that it was uh, using another phrase, which is quite uh, prevalent in the sports section, um, my way or the highway, because um, these this particular uh, uh, approaches, um, they might motivate short term, but the, those who are, are very, very active and very fit and they have very high goals, but they don't really work with the vast majority uh, of the exercises, those who struggle to start exercise or those who struggle to keep up exercise. Yeah, that's that's so interesting because yeah, it from my experience, it's just so reinforced as a as an instructor and a trainer that you know people you know want to be pushed to the limit, so to speak. Um, but yeah, again, your your study found something very different, and perhaps you know there are people who there's a better way to go about it and you know using those stt needs is a model that we as, as trainers could perhaps use to actually keep people in classes keep people enjoying um, the workout itself as well yeah pushing oneself to the to the limits is uh, something that works at very high levels of performance and we see that in elite sport but it's not the strategy that could be it's not the public health strategy it's not the public health message to motivate the unmotivated Right, so that, so you're saying it kind of would depend on their big initial level of motivation, so to speak. If you're more at a, at a less advanced level of motivation or not an elite athlete, if you like, then it would be better to perhaps use the approach that you're advocating for or that you found in the study. Is that right? Um, yeah, to some extent. I don't think, though, that... Uh, yes, I, I, I agree with what you said, but even when you come to more experienced exercises, uh, more seasoned exercises, um, I should constantly associate an exercise with a feeling of displeasure and, and pain uh, actually will not do much good in terms of their psychological well-being. And uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, so we talked about in, instructors and, and trainers, and I'm interested as well to hear your thoughts on medical practitioners and, for example, doctors, exercise physiologists, you know, how can they perhaps use, you know, the STT framework to get more adherence into not just exercise, but it could be medication, um, you know, which you know, there's adherence problems with a, a lot of different medications, um, you know, a lot of different treatment modalities. So how can perhaps they use this model to gain, gain more consistency of adherence um, from their um, patients? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the principles of communication are advocated by self-determination theory are more or less applicable for, uh, to a wide variety of uh, individuals in position of authority and their expertise. So um, some of the trainings of communication that we use to train 
fitness instructors or sport coaches are the same that have been used in other studies to train teachers and medical professionals. Um, so uh, the strategies uh, that support um, relatedness, competence and autonomy uh, are more or less uh, the same across these domains. So for instance, if you want to promote autonomy, one of the strategies is to give choice. You do it differently in a fitness setting, you can do it differently when you are a, a doctor interacting with your, your patients. So uh, as a doctor, obviously, uh, you have the uh, authority in terms of, and the expertise in terms of what is the, the best treatment, but sometimes uh, there isn't the one best treatment. <laughs> there are a few choices. So as a doctor, you can advise, but also it's important to, to give a choice uh, to, to your patients and acknowledge the, the feelings, uh, the negative feelings, their anxieties, and uh, try to, um, um, where possible, uh, accommodate concerns. Um, that's for autonomy, for, for competence. Um, obviously, uh, the same principles of communication in terms of uh, giving feedback, providing appropriate structure, uh, set uh, realistic goals. Um, so the the operationalization of uh, these principles is context specific, but the principles are invariant and could be applied across different um, significant hours. And I'm curious, just on the back of that, have you seen this actually used in practice, you know, anywhere in the world um, by medical health practitioners, you know, outside the the confines, say, of a, of a clinical trial, or? Um, you know, is this yet to really be implemented in practice, so to speak? Yeah, um, it has been. There are studies using uh, healthcare professionals um, that have used uh, self-determination theory, and uh, are they observing uh, how uh, need supportive these uh, healthcare professionals are, or training these uh, uh, professionals to be more uh, need supportive? There is a similar model to, well, it has quite a lot of overlap with the STD approach. It's called the five A's. It's about uh, asking, uh, adv advising, and essentially uh, it's about promoting autonomy and uh, the other three, the other two psychological needs uh, in interactions with um, uh, patients. And the five A's model has been uh, recently advocated by the American American Heart Association as uh, a very promising framework for um, helping people uh, with uh, heart problems in terms of uh, modifying um, important lifestyle behaviors, primarily uh, physical activity and healthy eating. So it's this quite uh, promising that this prestigious uh, uh, professional association, the American Heart Association, is advocating essentially an STD-based approach uh, to um, promote uh, changes in um, uh, lifestyle behaviors. All right. Okay. I didn't know that. Well, I know what my my reading letter for tonight will be to check out this this five A's model. Um, just I suppose finally, Nikos, you know, I want to be respectful of, of your time. Um, the stepping outside, perhaps the confines of, of exercise now. Um, I see, this is just talking to young people in general now, um, and I've been subject to this myself, but in terms of career paths and career goals, you know, some people 
and when I was younger, certainly kind of um, geared out and set my career path based on what society, family, friends thought was the notion of successful, right? Whereas I understand, you know, with SDT, you know, we would predict we'd see more psychological well-being, more longevity in a career, perhaps even if you did something that's more um, in line with your values or that you actually enjoyed you know, in and of itself, right? So when you've got a, you know, a conflict between those two, how would a young person go about, you know, navigating those, those pressures when perhaps um, it may lead them astray in terms of, you know, those outcomes I just listed for a, a career path sense? That's a very good question, and um, it's difficult, I guess, to 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 give uh, an, uh, an an easy answer to that because it depends on the culture which within which one person operates and how much autonomy they have at the end of the day. Uh, how is it for them to to rebel, so to speak? Um, it and we do see that uh, often uh, people are. Uh, forced in a way to to make career choices that are not aligned with the values and interests, and um, these pressures could come from uh, uh, a great number of factors. It could be, for instance, uh, survival factors. Basically, the reason uh, some of these choices will not give them enough money to survive, but often is the 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 pressure from the social environment, but primarily the parents, in shaping these choices and. Um, I guess uh, um, to, I think there isn't a, we, as you said, uh, eventually the, these people who will uh, forced to take the career path that is not aligned with the uh, values and goals, these people will not enjoy um, their the career. And to some extent, they might likely to, to drop out. And uh, when they become financially independent or older, they might change. Um, their career path, either very early by dropping out from their uh, university studies or later on by stopping their career. Uh, and those who stay long-term are likely to, to suffer in terms of um, uh, feeling uh, low work motivation and uh, feeling um, um, low stimulation for work and uh, unhappy. Um, I guess, as I mentioned earlier, if there is no escape, so to speak, one needs to identify what, what elements of the job are fun or could be made more fun and more interesting. So is there anything you can do with uh, your current career path, any modifications that are within your control to make it more enjoyable and more personally, personally meaningful? If so, try to change those uh, to make the job more, more interesting. But of course, the, the best course of action is to uh, educate uh, parents uh, and um, the social environment about the consequences of forcing young people to make choices that are not aligned with uh, values, uh, these young people's uh, values and goals. And of course, parents um, more often than not have good intentions, right? They don't do it. Uh, some do it because they want to unfulfill their own unsuccessful career dreams, but more often than not, parents have good intentions and they see some um, for primarily financial benefits from these career choices, but uh, there has to be some sort of balance and I think um, giving more education to parents in terms of uh, what are the consequences of uh, um, 
forcing and pressuring young people to make such choices is quite important. It's good to offer advice and not, uh, offer guidance, but at the end of the day, the decisions should be made by um, the children. I think it's a really important point, and there's there's a lot there to to stew over, particularly if you are a young person and you know you are in the midst of that and and you know trying to decide what's a more authentic career path for yourself versus you know what society says is um you know successful if there's a conflict there. Um, yeah, it's also hmm. this is easy to 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 choose an alternative career path for now, right? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's very true. It is context dependent, as you said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is, is there, are there any kind of other comments you wanted to, to make, Nikos, you know, wrapping up? Um, I guess um, it is important to prioritize what you want to achieve and don't be overly ambitious um, and set goals that uh, are in line with uh, what you believe and what you value. Ideally, goals that uh, you'll have fun trying to, to pursue them um and uh, try to elicit social support from your environment when pursuing these goals being a, a career related or health related goals and uh, be prepared to modify your goals um the another <laughs> a cliche phrase i don't like very much is the never give up uh, we talked uh, mm -hmm. earlier about uh, some other cliches in the fitness industry. That's another one, never give up. And I think that's, uh, again, maybe this uh, cliche comes from uh, um, good intentions of people uh, uh, need to persist and achieve their goals. Uh, but uh, sometimes goals uh, could be too difficult to attain and pursuing these unattainable goals will make you suffer and uh, eventually will lead you nowhere. Um, if anything, it, will, it might cause you burnout. And uh, so you have to be prepared to be flexible with your goal striving. Um, whatever goals you pursue in your life, you have to be able to evaluate them regularly. And uh, if the long-term prospects don't look good, do adjust your goals and get people around you if you need help to help you to readjust your goals by lowering your expectations or potentially re-engage with other goals, other meaningful goals in your life uh, because there are a lot of different roads that lead to Rome. Mm. That's, that's fantastic advice, Nikos. And yeah, certainly advice that even myself, I know that um, you know, it, it's hard to disengage from that, never give up. Um, you know, when you hear it so often. So, yeah, it's a good reminder there of the value of sometimes pivoting. Yeah, what, what we, most often we see those who uh, achieve uh, triumph over adversity, and these are the few cases uh, where we don't really, maybe like two out of a hundred people, and we don't hear much about the other 98 who go to failed, uh, experienced anxiety, depression, burnout, for pursuing this uh, again, um, for, for actually um, pursuing goals which are unattainable, because this kind of stories don't make a good Hollywood movie. I like the two percent of the stories. <laughs>